Hey everyone, Eric here. Just before we get to today's show, I want to let you know that we're offering our podcast listeners a special 20% lifetime discount to the China Africa Daily Brief. Now that's the newsletter that Cobus and I produce every day that provides the most comprehensive digest of everything China's doing on the continent and now increasingly throughout the global south. In addition to the newsletter, you'll also get full archive access to the website and the China Africa Experts Network as well. To get that discount, just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe and use the promo code podcast at checkout. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, we're coming up on April 11th, which will mark the one-year anniversary since what's become known as the Guangzhou Incidents. Now, if you recall, that's when dozens, possibly hundreds of black and African residents in the southern Chinese city were evicted from their homes and hotels and forced to live on the streets in what became a major international incident that called attention to the issue of anti-black discrimination in China. Now, over the past year, we actually haven't heard that much about the situation for African residents in Guangzhou. Uh, although Chinese officials never formally apologized for what happened last April, and that, by the way, is still very much a sore issue for a lot of people, in Guangzhou itself, the local and provincial governments apparently did implement quite a few measures to improve communication with the local African community. But one of the problems, and this is something you and I have talked about quite a bit over the past year, is the fact that there just aren't a lot of journalists anymore in China to cover these types of stories. The Chinese press itself, when it covers it, is, is highly distorted. Everything is fine. There's no discrimination. It's very rosy. So we weren't getting a lot of first-person accounts and I just want to bring everybody's attention to some stories on the China Africa Project website that we did with uh, some Chinese students who went down to Guangzhou, and they gave really fascinating accounts of how the community is healing from what happened there back in April of last year. But one of the outcomes from what happened in Guangzhou was that a lot of the international news coverage about the African diaspora population in China used that incident as sort of a benchmark. And so in almost every story that we see today about black residents and African residents in China includes a reference to what happened in Guangzhou. And while I get it, it makes sense on one level to reference the Guangzhou incidents, it also is a very simplistic reductionist way of looking at what is a highly complex situation as in every country where migration and migrants are an issue. And you kind of have this association now of China, Guangzhou, racism. And that's a part of the story, but Kobus, it's only one part. And I think one of the problems that we also see in the wake of what happened in Guangzhou is the powerful media bubbles and feedback loops that we all live in. So what happened is that people in China on their WeChat and Weibo feeds 
We're seeing one narrative. People on Facebook and Twitter, depending on where you were in Africa or in the US or in Europe, you saw a different narrative. We're hearing on places like Clubhouses, the social audio chat, there's another narrative. And there's not a lot of cross-pollination of these ideas. Everybody's kind of in their own corners. So Cobus, it's really hard to get a picture of what the complexity of the situation is in a place like Guangzhou. Yes, and the the problem is that it's also additionally really hard to get to get a picture of the complexity of the African population in Guangzhou. Period. You know, like this this is this is a, a really kind of complicated um, community that has gone through many changes, that has faced other crackdowns by Chinese authorities in the past, and it's very difficult to actually keep a pulse on on you know exactly what that that community constitutes, and then also how it's going with them. Okay, so for some perspective now on all that's happened, not just over the past year, but taking a broader look at the African diaspora population in Guangzhou and China writ large, there's a new book that's just out, African Transnational Mobility in China, Africans on the Move. It's written by Roberto Castillo, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Cultural Studies at Lingnan University in Hong Kong. He's one of the world's foremost scholars on the African diaspora population in southern China, and of course, an old friend of ours on the show. Roberto, congratulations on the new book, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us this afternoon. Thank you very much for inviting me, uh, Eric and Cobos. I think this is the sixth time that I've been here, so I feel that I'm part of the family now, and also congr- you are. congratulations and you're, to you're you probably the... right up there for the record of the of the most appearances yeah, on the show yeah. over the years. So <laughs> it's really uh, it's fantastic to have you back, and again, I think. It's wonderful to be able to reflect back on, again, what happened, but I also want to step back even farther and look at Guangzhou and also look at the the broader issues that surround the kind of African, as you said, yeah. transnational mobility in China. Let's first start with Guangzhou itself, because it's an amazing city. It's a city that I've spent quite a bit of time in over the years, but I think a lot of people outside of China and outside of Asia may not be familiar with it. In your book, Guangzhou itself feels like a character, almost like New York was a character in Sex in the City. Guangzhou is a character in your book. Why don't you start by kind of setting the tone for us about Guangzhou and what makes it so interesting? Definitely one of the um, most important elements in all the arguments that I make in, in African transnational mobility in China, Africans on the move, uh, it has to do with the character of the city, right? Guangzhou is in many ways a very underrated city. Uh, When we hear about China and we are not living in China or we don't know much about China, we often hear obviously about Beijing uh, and Shanghai and and not so much about other cities like like Guangzhou who has like a really uh, very interesting history and has like definitely been very important for how China has been connecting to the world, not just uh, in the last 20 years, but in general, the Guangdong region, which is uh, the province to which Guangzhou is the capital, has definitely been playing historically a very important role, right? But, you know, beyond that and focusing on, on, on the things that I mostly highlight in the book and why the city is so important, 
um, you know, Guangzhou is a, a Chinese metropolis, right? It's like this massive city with maybe 15, 16 million people in, in the population and with like maybe five to six uh, million in, in a floating population. These are people that move back and forth between different provinces and Guangzhou. So it's, it's definitely a massive urban space that, as I said, is underrated internationally because we don't know much we don't know much about it. We don't hear much about it. Uh, but also, uh, uh, and very importantly to my to my book and to the ways in which I understood Guangzhou, Guangzhou is a city of, of migrations, different types of migrations throughout history, right? Uh, it is definitely one of maybe three or four main centers in China that attract internal scores of internal migrants. Uh, all sorts of people coming from the whole country down to Guangzhou because of the economic push and the economic force that that city has, right? So, I mean, as you were making this comparison to New York, and, and nowadays, if you look at the skyline uh, of the city, it definitely looks like, I don't know, like Hong Kong or or many of like many of these like massive uh, Asian and uh, North American metropolis that are now sort of strikingly resembling each other in very fascinating ways. But more importantly, I think that one of the characteristics that made Guangzhou so interesting to me is that besides that kind of discourse that permeates many parts of the city, the discourse of modernity, globality, globalization, and uh, you know, uh, cosmopolitanism and so on and so forth. The city is very interesting in the sense that um, the ways in which it in which it grew uh, was kind of a weird mix between urban and rural, right? And and southern China region and Guangdong in particular, but more specifically in Guangzhou, there are so many urban villages, so many villages that got urbanized, right? So the city has all this glamour and skyscrapers and all these magnificent avenues, but then just behind the buildings sometimes has these like very small neighborhoods, very shabby, very cramped neighborhoods where you have like this very old housing and, and, and normally are like spaces where local Cantonese speakers wouldn't, would never dare to go and they're full of migrants from different parts of China. And in the last uh, 15 or 20 years, those spaces started become, especially uh, three or four villages started becoming also spaces where uh, migrants from different parts of the world and, and, and traders uh, started looking for accommodation, right? So this created a very fascinating mix between uh, internal domestic migrants in China, people that are not familiar with uh, Guangzhou in many ways, but that have to work and live in there, and people that are also not familiar with Guangzhou, but that have to also work and live in there, who come from different parts of the world. So it created a, a very interesting and fascinating space of encounter between different types of Chineseness or Chinese of different ethnicities with so many different foreigners coming from different parts of the world. And obviously, for what matters in this book, uh, so many different types of Africans from different countries that were lodging and inserting themselves in those spaces, creating this very fascinating mix between different Chinese ethnicities and, uh, if you want, different African ethnicities. So the city obviously has also, and I will, with this I will finish uh, this first um, a question, the city also has this historical connection to uh, different types of 
globalization that have been happening throughout centuries. So for instance, um, Quanzhou has, not so much now because of what's going on in China, and we can talk a little bit more about that later, but still when I went there for the first time in 2006, and then when I started doing research in 2011 and, and, and after that, the city was like a, a city where you could find a very important Muslim presence, right? And there are like very important Muslim uh, landmarks in the city that connect Quanzhou and Guangdong to places like Mecca and Medina and different places throughout uh, Indonesia. So there are very interesting connections that you can find in terms of Muslim culture. And obviously that's related to the uh, trading history of Islam. Uh, so in a way, when you don't know anything about the city and you get there and you see this massive city full of buildings and then you start realizing that it's got like uh, a lot of signs in, in like uh, different languages and in, in, in Persian and in Arabic and in other languages that sometimes you cannot really uh, understand because you, I don't know much about many languages, then you start feeling that the, his, that the city has this kind of other side of a, of a very interesting cosmopolitan history that connects to previous forms of globalization. And that, that's the reason why uh, you have this assemblage of uh, Africans, Middle Easterners, and also South Asians coming to do trade and what makes the city so special and so characteristic uh, in China, right? About the African population specifically, um, can you give us an idea of like where, like what's happening with them at the moment, you know, because... You know, as, as as you pointed out, obviously the COVID nineteen crisis was was a particularly difficult moment for them, but even before that, there were we we had indications that there were um some kind of crackdowns on the community that that some some of the areas that that came to that were thought of as as kind of centers of African commerce had a lot of of issues with immigration authorities and so on. So you know, the, where does it stand now in relation to the kind of boom that you described? You know, that that you first saw when you first visited. Yeah. Um, yes, it was definitely, I think, that the heyday of um, African presence in, in the city, this, this thriving African presence that we saw maybe from around about 2005 or 2006, all the way until, until 2014 or 15, uh, I think that that heyday has passed. Uh, there is definitely uh, this narrative of the uh, the African presence fading in the city, and it, it is definitely true in certain ways. But I think that what is very uh, important to highlight is that although uh, the main areas of the city or the main neighborhoods were African presence was very visible, especially because a lot of people uh, from different African countries used to lodge in certain hotels that were concentrated in a specific neighborhood, in two specific neighborhoods. And that kind of created a very African feeling in those neighborhoods. Uh, people are not going to those spaces as much as they used to, right? If you go today, there's still, you know, a significant African presence, but not like in, I would say maybe 2012, 
or 2013, where uh, if you would go to any of these neighborhoods at night uh, on uh, any given Friday, uh, the, the neighborhood would be so lively, so full of music, restaurants, people enjoying themselves after like a whole journey of trading and carrying boxes and buying clothes and so on and so forth, right? So in that sense, those spaces have been fading a little bit. The intensity is not, is not as it was. Um, so in that sense, we can talk about a, a declining presence. But what I do know from, from people that have been there um, for a long time, and this is something that I've been trying to do in the book and in, in my work for a long time, is to try to differentiate the different types of population, of African population that we have, right? Like the long-term uh, uh, long term residents in Guangzhou would never really hang out in these places that I'm talking about, right? Like the very, very African places or neighborhoods that became quite famous in international media after 2010, I would say, were not the places where also hundreds of Africans who are based in the city and are still there now, they would not really hang out in those places, right? So in, in that sense, those places have been disappearing a bit. Uh, but um, yeah, but another important point that I think uh, I think is important to make is, as you were saying, the, the, this, the, there was some kind of crackdown in those spaces and many people from different communities started uh, gathering in different parts of the city not as, as a pan-African congregation as it was, but nowadays you have like, you know, Malian traders or uh, Nigerian traders or Angolan traders that don't go to the same places because they don't want to be calling the, the attention of the authorities and they hang out in different parts of, of the city, right? So in that sense, just to finalize, uh, to answer your question, I think that um, one thing that we need to uh, debunk a bit in terms of thinking about Africans in Guangzhou is that often there's this narrative about African, the African community in Guangzhou, right? And I think that international media has always uh, used that, that, that concept of, or, or that idea, right? But in many ways, it's always been about uh, communities, right? And communities that in some ways sometimes are more closely connected, but in many other ways are not that connected. And I think that there's still a, a very relevant presence, a very important, significant presence of uh, people in, in, in the city, but it's not as concentrated as it was, so it definitely gives the impression that Africans are not there, are not there anymore. And also, obviously, nowadays with with all the complexities in terms of mobility and migration, uh, and international movement, the the numbers are definitely very very low at this point. We don't know exactly what's going to happen after the um, if there's ever an after where where borders open more freely. I don't know if we're going to go back to that, but if we were to go back to that, uh, no one really knows exactly what's happening. Um, now, one other thing that I wanted to highlight here, which is totally linked and relevant, is that a lot of the people that I, a lot of my contacts that used to move back and forth in normal times, is spending a lot of resources in coming to China, now have finally gone fully Weibo and other social media, and they have their representatives in the city or their, uh, what do you call them, like uh, middle, middle people or middlemen. And they're doing, they're doing similar business to what they were doing before, but not needing to come. So they have been realizing that sometimes there's no need to go to China, especially because they cannot travel now. 
So a lot of people have been doing, still doing trade, but only and mostly through, uh, you know, contacts that they contact through WeChat and social media. Let's spend a little time diving into the makeup of the community, because as you pointed out, it's not as unified as a lot of people may assume. And, and I know from my time in Guangzhou, nowhere near as much as you've spent, but there's a large Nigerian community, Cameroonian. Uh, I've met quite a few Congolese as well. And they tend to, the Francophones, from my experience, tend to stick to themselves, the Anglophones and so forth. And, and there's not that unity that's there. When a lot of people think about the African diaspora population in Guangzhou, but China, again, more broadly, two groups of people tend to come to mind. One are students and the others are traders. Can you kind of help us fill in the gaps of the diversity of the community that's in between students and traders? Yeah, well, definitely. As you were saying, there's there's definitely a, a big uh, gap between um, between different nationalities, right? Like some, as you were saying, some people gather in some places, uh, francophones, and and also there's obviously the religious divide. Um, so that that's there. But when when we're talking about the ways in which they've been represented and how um, the the media narratives normally talk about, as you said traders and, and students, um, there are other types of, I mean, between traders and students, it's also a little bit tricky because many students are also traders, right? Or start doing trade at some point. So the, 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 the distinction is a little bit, gets blurred by the activities that people uh, decide to engage in. Uh, in the city, there's also uh, a significant, a very, um, a very important presence of um, African Americans and um, and um, um, black people or black diasporic people from Europe, uh, and also in the sense that it's not only traders. There's also a lot of people doing different activities like um, uh, sports related or. Um, also, I found a lot of people doing teaching. Um, uh, or you know, but the thing is that there, there it's it's a mix of people that you can find that um, many of even the ones that were teaching at some point decide to start engaging or doing a little bit of petty trade and sending things back to their countries. So I, I think that in, in in a way, yes, we can say that the the majority of the population uh, has been. Uh, encapsulated within these two groups, right? Traders and students. But it's not that the students are always only study, studying or that traders are only trading, right? They start doing different activities. One of the things that I found really interesting about the book is, you know, many, many accounts that I've read of, of the African population in, in Guangzhou tend to focus on the African population in Guangzhou. And, you know, you, you like the, the book is very interesting in the sense that it puts all of this migration in the context of internal Chinese migration of people moving from one part of China to Guangzhou. Like, how, how do those two, you know, very large kind of groups of people, how do they interact? Well, I mean, there are many stories of connection, different types of connections that take place between um, different types of Chinese migrants and different types of Africans in the city, right? 
uh, as Eric was saying a little bit earlier, uh, francophones tend to stay in certain areas. And sometimes um, I, I would say that the francophone community has historically been a Muslim community in, in, in China. And that's for specific uh, historical reasons, obviously. But uh, many of these uh, Muslim francophones tend to link with uh, Muslim Chinese or Muslim ethnic minorities from China, right? Specifically, uh, Hui, uh, the Hui uh, ethnic minority, which is a, a Muslim um, minority in China, right? So th that would be, for instance, one of the examples where you can find that there are very interesting connections between um, different types of Africans and different types of Chinese. But one thing that I discovered when I was doing the research for this book is that... Uh, and that I find very interesting for the discussion about ethnicity and Chinese ethnicities and, and all this is that in many ways, Africans in China started getting um, kind of associated with the Chinese ethnic system as if they were also a new ethnic group in in China, right? I mean, um, there's a, a Ghanaian professor, Adams Bodomo, who wrote a book, perhaps the, the, the pioneer, not, not perhaps indeed, the pioneering book on African presence in China. And one of the many things that he says in his books is that at some points, Africans would become a, a new, or African Chinese people would become a new ethnic minority in, in the country, right? And uh, a lot of people were not necessarily sure about his his statement. But the point here is that uh, Africans have somehow inserted themselves so deeply into the social, how could we say this, like the social fabric of society in China, that in many ways, um, especially in the case of Guangzhou, authorities started treating them as if they were another ethnic uh, minority group in China, right? With the with the positive and the negative things that can be associated to being treated as an ethnic minority in China. There is obviously a history of not very good treatment of the ethnic minorities that lie at the margins of uh, what we understand as contemporary mainstream Chineseness, which is Han Chineseness, right? So I'm talking about Hui groups, but also about Uyghur, uh, Uyghur minorities in China. So Africans have been sort of associated, not only associating with ethnic minorities and migrants from different provinces, but also kind of treated and uh, sort of under their presence understood in China as if they were uh, uh, an ethnic minority in the country. And I think that that's a point that I make uh, uh, in chapter three of the book. And I found that fascinating because many of the complaints that you find in Africans in China about, about how they get treated by authorities, and many of these complaints get racialized by international media and then they get translated in different contexts as something else, are very similar to the treatments and the complaints that you would find from uh, ethnic minorities in, in China. And obviously nowadays there's the complex discussion about race and racism also at the domestic level in China. Um, and, and that's definitely another story, but it's associated to this. Well, race and racism are very much a part of this story. They're inseparable, obviously. And since what's happened last year in Guangzhou, there's been quite a bit of analysis on the issue of racism, uh, particularly anti-black racism in China. It came up also last year when, they, when the Chinese government, in a 
fit of transparency that we're really not accustomed to put out onto for public comment people to respond to what they think of a change in the permanent residency laws. And again, this is something that's unusual in China because typically the government does not kind of ask for people's opinion and input. They did not make any mention of Africans or black people when they put this this measure out for comment. And yet the discussion turned decidedly hostile, negative, toxic, and vile with people saying the most awful things about Africans and black people. Then what we saw in, in, in Guangzhou, we saw also a number of incidents and on social media in general, there's been quite a bit of hostility towards minorities, black people, lots of different things. Now, to be fair, I'm not sure that we can judge the merit of any society based on social media. Yeah, yeah. There are, you know, assholes everywhere on the world in social media. So I'm not sure that we can walk away from looking at WeChat and Weibo and saying, well, China's a racist society because their social media is racist. However, it does reveal something about the relationship that that this particular group has with Han society and Chinese society more broadly. Talk to us a little bit about the race issue and the perceptions of black and African people in, in, in China and Guangzhou. Well, I mean, this is definitely something very uh, important to anyone who wants to understand what is going on uh, in China. Um, I, I definitely agree with you. And I think that we've spoken about this several times in, in different in previous podcasts as to if we just want to say, OK, uh, it's racist or it's racism or Chinese society is, is a racist society and we don't want to explore anything else. Maybe we just get satisfied and remain at that level and we don't want to know more Then Yeah, well, that's fine. Right. It's a very simplistic explanation that sort of uh, overlooks or erases all the complexities associated with what's going on. Uh, I, I like to go more into complex things and try to understand what's going on and if in reality we can speak about uh, what's going on in China in the ways in which I often see in, 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 in international media and in social media with all these very uh, decontextualized ways of assuming that China is a racist society. And I do believe that in many ways to think that China is a racist society uh, works to palliate some kind of white guilt, right? So always framing China in that way uh, responds to that kind of anxiety, right? But having said that, I think that definitely there are very important issues that that that, that many different researchers and people uh, like one of the articles that you were sh- that you shared in in Weibo, uh, this anonymous researcher or, or group of researchers, they're highlighting something that is. Yes, we cannot say that China is a racist society based on what some trolls or idiots say on Weibo, but definitely that's it shows that there's something going on, right? That maybe we shouldn't use to generalize, but we should definitely pay attention to. I think that um, uh, the the kind of language and the and the rhetoric that we find in those spaces and uh, goes beyond. Uh, the, the categorization of such things as incidents, right? I think, or I think, I think they're, they're showing that there's more, more of a systematic or systemic uh, discourse that is taking place, that is kind of evolving or it's kind, kind of emerging. Now, um, we often talk about uh, anti-black, lately of late, we've been talking a lot about anti-black racism in China. We've been uh, definitely a lot of people have been uh, highlighting that. Uh, there's, I mean, there's not much evidence connected to to, un- to a very clear 
like uh, anti-black racism as a very clear formation, but there are some people that have been providing, you know, evidence or or uh, uh, arguments to 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 put that forward. Uh, obviously, that connects, and this is very interesting and fascinating. Connects with like the emergence of uh, a right wing, right wing kind of populism as a discourse in China, which also connects to uh, new renewed ideas of Han supremacy and racial nationalism. And if you listen to these four concepts that I just mentioned, right, Han supremacy, racial nationalism, right-wing populism, anti-black racism, it all sounds like, I mean, it is reminiscent of what, what's going on in the U.S. in a way, right? When we talk about the alt-right and all this also a right-wing populism that you guys uh, you guys have in the US, right? So you get this very complex formation, uh, I don't know, right-wing, conservative, racist formation. And, uh, you, you know, I, I just don't always know exactly what is it we're talking about, right? Like people focus a lot on anti-black racism and pay attention to that as if that was the, the, the best descriptor for this formation that we're seeing uh, now taking place in China as China becomes uh, such an important player in international politics. But I just don't know exactly what it is. I'm trying to, uh, I mean, I'm trying to answer your question, uh, Eric, but also by highlighting that uh, things are so complex now and we live in all this, as you, as you said earlier, we live in this space, this very fragmented media reality where everybody is living inside their little bubbles and that we don't share really experiences, language or understanding of so many different things. But yet you have people talking about all these concepts, right? So whatever is going on in China now in relation to this uh, it's, it's, it's a bit complex, I would say, and it makes me think of this very, um, very famous uh, um, parable of, uh, that is often used in sociology and social sciences of the, the blind man and the elephant. I don't know if you guys are acquainted with that. With that sure, story, yeah. With that... You can see what you want in the relationship with the blind man and the elephant, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So it's like, I mean, if... if what is the elephant? This is just very briefly for the audience. Is this uh, this parable where like six or five or six blind men have never seen an elephant, and they 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 encounter one and they hear it and they're supposed to touch it, and each one of them touch different parts of the elephant, so they describe the elephant as a very different thing, right? Each one of and one touches the trunk and one touches the legs, so they they provide entirely different descriptions of. The elephant, and that that metaphor is used uh, to talk about society in sociology and social sciences, that people describe a society according to where they come from and their own experiences. Now, why I'm talking about this in, in relation to race and racism in China, is because this is such an emergent formation that uh, many of us and many people who have experienced this, and I, as a researcher, I've been studying this, but I myself, as a brown-skinned person, I have I have also uh, encountered certain uh, uh, incidents of racism, if you want, in China. Uh, so everybody touches different parts of the emerging emergent formation, and some people call it anti-black racism, some people call it right-wing populism, uh, racial nationalism, Han supremacy. I, I tend to think, 
I like I have an inkling that the elephant is called ethnocentrism, and it's an elephant that you can find in different parts of the world. But still, I think it's kind of an emerging formation, and we tend to pay a lot of attention to the African uh, case, the African population in China, as if this was really the most relevant uh, part of the elephant, whereas perhaps uh, it is just like uh, I don't know, just like part of the tail, right? One of the really interesting strands in the book is is the way that the, the different connections between um, between different communities, including between different Chinese communities and different African communities, is also shaped through food. And and you have a section on on tilapia, the fish. Um, you know that that's that's fascinating as this kind of example of of the kind of complexity of this this interchange. Can you talk a little bit about tilapia and why you why you chose that as a as a case study? Well, one of the reasons why I got really fascinated by um, by tilapia in Guangzhou is it's not only because I ate it many times and I was sometimes really hungry after, uh, you know, after doing uh, research work the whole day and I would just buy one or two tilapias with one or two beers and just talk to anybody who was sitting there, mostly Angolans, back in the in the time when I was um, eating a lot of tilapias in Guangzhou. But I, I, it became really uh, interesting to me to see that in certain neighborhoods in, in Guangzhou, um, tilapia, and for those of you who may not know what tilapia is, tilapia is a, a fish that in many ways... Um, connects different African countries and cultures. Uh, it's supposed to have originated in Lake Victoria and can be found in so many different African cuisines. It's, it's an, a very easy to produce and reproduce fish. Uh, in many parts of the world, it's seen as, a, as an invasive uh, um, uh, species. Uh, but um, in Guangzhou, I, I found it very interesting because I, I realized that because of the, the massive size of the African presence back in the day, a lot of uh, ethnic uh, restaurants like uh, Uyghur, uh, lamb, barbecue lamb restaurants, or, uh, or for instance, uh, uh, noodles from Lanzhou, Lanzhou noodle houses, which are also very pervasive throughout southern China and many parts of China, stopped, stopped doing what they were traditionally doing for decades in those neighborhoods. And they started changing their menus and bringing tilapia in. And sometimes, you know, if tilapia is, an inv- an in- an in- is considered to be invasive, in some ways, in these restaurants, tilapia also became invasive and the menu just became different types of tilapia dishes, right? And it was really interesting for me to see that uh, not only Africans and not only people from those ethnic uh, minorities that were uh, having the restaurants producing the fish for uh, selling the fish for Africans, but also people from the neighborhoods and and Guangzhou local population started sort of jumping into the uh, the phenomenon of eating tilapia uh, and grilled tilapia, right? Because uh, tilapia is also used in uh, different Chinese cuisines, uh, not so much, not as uh, it's not as popular as it is in Africa, but uh, in in Guangzhou the grilled form of the tilapia became very, very uh, popular. And it became popular also, and more importantly, because the people from Xinjiang, most of the Uyghurs that back in the day were a thriving population also in in Guangzhou and also got a crackdown similar to to the Africans. Uh, There's almost no Uyghurs now in Guangzhou as they used to be, almost all over China, actually. 
um, they started grilling the tilapia in the same grills where they had traditionally grilled uh, lamb, lamb skewers, right? So at first I was like so affected by the fact that there was no more lamb skewers in the neighborhoods where I was working. And then I realized that these guys saw a trend coming and they decided just to jump into the trend and sell naan bread, which is a typical flat bread that comes from uh, Xinjiang and Central Asia, naan bread with, uh, with tilapia and sometimes also um, with a couple of other salads or things around, right? So I found it fascinating as a kind of a hybrid uh, mix where different um, ethnic minorities in China were kind of accidentally working together to create a new cultural formation. And obviously this, uh, when I interviewed one of these men from Xinjiang who was grilling tilapia in the very early days of my research, he told me that they decided to go into the tilapia because uh, several people coming from different African countries, mostly from East Africa, were telling them, you know, we need to have fish in here. There's this fish that you can buy here in China, but uh, they farm it here in Guangdong province. We consume it a lot in Africa. And uh, long story short, the, um, the Uyghurs decided that they were going to be grilling instead of chicken and lamb, the traditional dishes. Uh, they just went for the tilapia, and I found it uh, definitely fascinating as a form of connection uh, between Uyghurs, um, Hui people, Muslims, and Chinese Muslims, and different types of Africans. I'd like to close out our discussion today with looking at the community going forward. And one of the fascinating articles that you wrote in the aftermath of Guangzhou last year, I think you did it for African Arguments, was that how a lot of Nigerian and Congolese and other African residents in Guangzhou lived in this legal gray area. They weren't illegal migrants, but they weren't fully legal. And in China, immigration is a very complex issue. It's not like, say, in other countries where there's an immigration department. They don't have the equivalent in China of uh, immigration customs enforcement like we have in the United States. And so the status is very, very complicated. But one of the things you pointed out was how COVID-19 has required even closer surveillance of the population. And as a result of the closer surveillance of the Chinese population by the state, then it's going to be more difficult for African residents to live in that gray area because of the heightened surveillance that's now in place and it's now very common. Um, Talk to us a little bit about that issue of life in the gray area and what impact you think will have on the community going forward. Well, I think that the point that I was trying to make is that for a long, long time, and not only not only Africans, people from so many different countries took advantage of the lax system that China had had for a long time in relation to people coming in and coming out, right? So um, obviously there were a lot of overstayers. And one of the reasons why I always say that because people tend to use the word illegal, illegal immigrants or illegal migrants a little bit too easily, right? But normally when you talk about illegal immigrants in uh, in the American context or uh, maybe in the, in the European context also, normally these people are people that 
uh, at least the ways in which they're represented in media, are people that enter the country illegally, right? That like either cross the border or walk through the desert in the U.S. or took a boat from North Africa to anywhere in Italy and, and so on and so forth. Now, the reason why I'm always against using the illegal immigrant kind of uh, term is because most of the people that decide to overstay, which is, if you want, breaking the law in China, especially now that they became a little bit more, uh, that is, everything is more tight and, and, and harder, uh, none of them enter the country illegally, right? So uh, I'm against that, that, that term, but in China, no one enters China illegally. Maybe some people from Vietnam, but that's another story, right? So... Uh, Often you would find this type of categorization of illegal Im blacks associated with this notion of illegal immigration in China, which is, is not the case, right? Now, and that's why I was highlighting that there are gray areas where a lot of people decide to either overstay or uh, they find a way to buy passports. And back in the day, you could just very easily buy visas, no problem. But now things became a little bit more complex. Now... I, th I think that a great a great number of the uh, the Africans that were in in Guangzhou when I first went there in two thousand uh, to do research in two thousand ten and eleven and maybe two thousand eleven, many of them were living in these gray spaces, right? Like some of them would stay overstay their visas for three months, four months, one year, then uh, re find a way to renew the visa, get a relationship, somehow pay a, a bribe or a fine to exit the country and come back. Uh, many of them would like find a way to fix that through finding a job or, you know, so there were so many ways to stay in China for a long time. Also coming back and forth, those for those who never never really broke the law, uh, they would normally, if they had the means, they would normally get out to Hong Kong or Macau and then come back to China, like sometimes just one day trip to Hong Kong back and forth. Then when things became a little bit more difficult, they would normally move from uh, from from China, Guangzhou, take a trip to Malaysia or Singapore and then back, and back to to China. But now my point in the African arguments piece is that um, we don't exactly know what's going to happen with migration and mobility in the post-pandemic uh, scenario in China. We're starting to get an inkling on of what's going to happen. And although it's not being used in a pervasive way, the QR code system that emerged, especially uh, maybe uh, around about a year ago in China, uh, to check the, you know, it, it worked like a health passport where if you had a green color, then you were able to enter malls or take buy a train ticket or buy a flight ticket. So a lot of people saw that that was happening and thought, okay, maybe this is the future of surve surveillance for Chinese populations or anyone who enters and lives in China. And then it kind of started fading as China started sort of relaxing a little bit in terms of uh, the mobility inside the country. So the, the health codes have, have not been as pervasive as we imagined they were going to be. However, uh, no one really knows what's going to happen. We don't know what, what's going to be the impact of treatments and vaccines, and if we're ever ever really going to be able to get rid of the uh, of the of the virus. So uh, we can see that in different countries uh, now, what we see is that people are starting to talk and think about uh, 
you know, vaccine passports and something that resembles exactly what China was doing. So there could be the, the situation where China re, uh, reinstates this, uh, this idea or this system of controlling the movement of people, any kind of people inside the country through all these technological, uh, artificial intelligence mediated uh, uh, mechanisms. And I think that that's going to be making almost impossible for anyone, and not only in China, I mean, uh, informal migration and informal forms of mobility are going to be uh, very difficult in in a post-COVID uh, environment where we are basing our movement on vaccine passports and, and all these types of things, and especially in, in the Chinese context where uh, China, where foreigners are so easy to spot and track and, uh, and you know, being stopped in the street and get and check your papers. And, and so that, that situation that many uh, brown and black people are familiar with in China and in Hong Kong, uh, that's going to make it almost impossible, I think, for people to uh, reside in those gray areas in the country. So, uh, and to finalize with this question, I think that the, the nature of African transnational mobility in China will um, will be heavily impacted by uh, the regimes of control and surveillance that we will uh, see emerging not only in China, but China is one of the leading spaces for that, but definitely also in, in other parts of the world. The book is African Transnational Mobility in China, Africans on the Move. And it's available on Amazon.com. The hardcover price is a little bit intimidating at $152. (laughs) It's really intimidating. So I put a lot of pressure on the I put a lot of pressure on the editors to give us a good price for the Kindle version. And it's still not the best, but it's it's much more It's not the best, but it's not terrible at $35.99. So I don't know if I would buy my own book. Fair enough, but uh, (laughs) I recommend that other people buy your book if you're really interested in the nuanced discussion about the African population in Guangzhou, which then talks a lot about the African population in China writ large. It's written by Roberto Castillo, assistant professor at Lingnan University in Hong Kong. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. You have a fantastic website that has a lot of your writings and also links to your your various videos and also just a great resource about the African diaspora community in Guangzhou and China. What's the address to that website? Thanks, Eric. Uh, that, the website is africansinchina.net. And I'm also on Twitter uh, at, in, with the handle Africans in China. And those are the two ways where people can follow the, the work that I've done in relation to Africans in China. Fantastic. And I also recommend that if you go onto our website, do a search for Roberto's name. You'll find all of the previous podcasts. We've published a number of his different articles. We've referenced him in quite a few different stories that we've produced over the years talking about this. You have a nice historical archive, a lot of the things that Roberto's done over on ChinaAfricaProject.com. Once again, Roberto, thank you so much for taking the time and congratulations on the book. No, my pleasure to be here, and like, hopefully I get to be in the seventh podcast at some point in the next two years, not to make it so often. <laughs> Absolutely. Cobus, what I appreciate most about the new book is the level of complexity and nuance that Roberto brings to the discussion, because the issue, again, has been reduced to such simplistic binary kind of framing in terms of 
China good, China bad, racism not racist, and based on what happened in Guangzhou last year. And again, it's understandable because people who kind of come into this issue, read one or two news stories, they don't have the time to get into the detail, into the nuance of it. But race and culture and immigration in every society is highly complex, and China's no exception. One other very important takeaway here is that the situation in Guangzhou is not representative of the situation for not only black and African migrants across China, but all migrants across China in the diversity. So very important to look at cities like Iwu, also Shanghai, Beijing. There's also an emerging African population in Shenzhen. There's a tech community that's down there. You and I spoke with the team in uh, behind this wonderful new podcast in Hong Kong, who's talking about the black expatriate experience in Hong Kong. So there's a lot more diversity in that population than I think a lot of people take away from the discussion about what happened in Guangzhou last year. And, and I think it's un unfortunate, terribly, terribly unfortunate that everything has been reduced now to the Guangzhou incidents. And that's what shapes so much of the discourse, although I understand why, because that's the nature of media and social media today. Yes, and the the problem is that it's also additionally really hard to get to get a picture of the complexity of the African population in Guangzhou. Period. You know, like this this is this is a, a really kind of complicated community that has gone through many changes, that has faced other crackdowns by Chinese authorities in the past, and it's very difficult to actually keep a pulse on on you know exactly what that that community constitutes, and then also how it's going with them. We also want to point you in the direction of some other fantastic resources on this topic. We've featured some great articles from Black Livity China. They are tweeting on social media quite a bit. They are providing some fascinating insights. Also, Development Reimagined, Hannah Ryder over there has a lot of great insights on this issue. Uh, Miata Mo at Kente and Silk. So there are there's a lot of, of voices in this discussion that often get overlooked again, by the framing that's done in the mainstream media. Uh, again, let's not be too hard on mainstream media because they are providing a broad overview. But in order to provide that broad overview to make it engaging for people outside of China, they do have to cut some corners and to simplify it down. But for those of you listening to this podcast, you're going to want to do some deep dives. We've got quite a few resources on our websites. There's also the Black China Caucus. And they've been doing some fantastic work by organizing black voices, both in the United States, in Asia, and in Africa, to comment on issues of racial justice in China, discrimination, all of these issues that, that Roberto raises in his book. So collectively, I think that's how you frame a, a more accurate, refined view of this very, very complicated story. And it is changing. Not only, for example, is life getting more difficult for African migrants who live in that gray area as Roberto talked about, but all foreigners in China now are facing difficulty. And he pointed out the fact that there are now immigration checks, visa checks. Uh, I myself, when I was living there uh, up until 2019, uh, we encountered quite a few difficulties and I was working for a big company. And But yet it's just, there's a lot more attention on people and they're really asking for papers and checking things. It was interesting, Kobus, in Shanghai, just a little anecdote, the police would set up outside of a nightclub at like, two or three in the morning in Shanghai. And then they would say, everybody out the door. And then they would put Chinese nationals into one line and they would take the foreigners into another line. They made the foreigners pee into a cup. If there was any trace of drugs, you were arrested immediately. And then what they did is they required everybody to show proof of their, their right to stay in China. 
I mean, that's that was not uncommon in Shanghai. And, and then they had buses there where if you couldn't prove that you were illegal to stay, you you got to sit in the bus. And I don't know where you went or what happened, but they were very, very serious. So life as a immigrant, as a foreigner, as a foreign resident in China has become more difficult from the early 2000s when this really vibrant, dynamic community in Guangzhou, back then it was called Chaokalicheng, which is Chocolate City. There was also, do you remember about seven, eight years ago, Kobus, you and I did an interview with a photographer about Xiaobeilu. And Xiaobeilu was this road in, uh, in Guangzhou, which was the right at the heart of the African community. I haven't been back recently, but I suspect a lot of that's been developed over and has changed quite a bit. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. We cover this issue in depth every single day in our China Africa email newsletter. For those of you who subscribe, we want to thank you so much for supporting independent journalism and the kind of work that Cobus and I do to put this newsletter together every day. It's basically a deep dive on every single issue that's going on in the China-Africa relationship. We do talk quite a bit about these issues that Roberto raised. You can find out more at ChinaAfricaProject.com, but if you'd like to subscribe, we have a special offer just for our really our treasured podcast listeners, just enter the promo code podcast and you'll get a 20% discount for lifetime. So it renews every year and you'll get that 20% discount. So if you're a student, uh, you're getting 20% off $7 a month, which is only about $5 and 50 or 60 cents. So that's the price of a Starbucks coffee and you can get a, uh, a wonderful subscription. So student to teachers, it's half price. $15 a month for everybody else. Again, use the promo code podcast and get 20% off for the lifetime of your subscription over at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. It would be wonderful to have you part of our growing community of readers around the world. So that'll do it. We'll be back again next week with another edition. For Kobus Fenstaden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>